Hello, and welcome to the Contours podcast by the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. This is your host, Carolyn Mormon, and today we'll be discussing the recent events that have unfolded in Russia as Yevgeny Prigozhin led an armed insurrection against the Putin regime. I'll be joined by two guests to discuss the insurrection itself and the larger implications of it on Russian foreign policy and the operations of the Wagner Group abroad. But first, a little bit about our guests. Jeff Hahn is a non-resident fellow at New Lines and a doctoral candidate within the Department of International History at the London School of Economics. Jeff's research focuses on the aftermath of the Cold War and the emergence of modern Russia. Before undertaking his doctoral studies, Jeff previously worked as a private sector tactical intelligence analyst and has written extensively on Russia's domestic politics and foreign policy. Aram Shabanian is the open source information gathering OSIG manager at the New Lines Institute. He focuses on researching and analyzing violent far-right groups in the U.S., as well as the Islamic State group and associated movements, through utilizing a mixture of traditional research methods with modern-day technology-assisted open-source intelligence. Jeff, I'd like to start with you and have you give us a background to who the Wagner Group is, how they've evolved since they've come onto the scene in 2014, and what their relationship with Putin and the regime looks like, given that they are both a private organization but also a key tool in Russian foreign policy. Hey, Carolyn, thank you for having me. So a couple of points I want to start with. First of all, people keep calling this a coup, and that's not actually an accurate description. That implies that the goal was always regime change, when in fact it was regime modification. So I've been referring to it as an armed protest. You'll note that throughout the entire process, Prigozhev was very careful not to name Putin directly or call for his overthrow. Instead, his dispute was with the Ministry of Defense. And the reason why I bring this up is to answer your question. The Wagner Group is not a private entity. Uh, It is on paper, but in effect, it is an extension of the Russian state and one that was set up to provide the Russian state an ability to self-finance to a degree. We now know that the Russian state has been financing them heavily, but to self-finance to a degree or to subsidize foreign policy hybrid warfare abroad. Russia, since the fall of the Soviet Union, has found it difficult to maintain official military missions abroad. It wasn't until the Syrian civil war that they had a major military mission outside the boundaries of the old Soviet Union, with the exception of internationally approved missions like the uh, keeping operations in Serbia. Wagner was a way to provide a degree of distance from the Russian state, but also continue to push Russian influence in a very kinetic way by providing a force multiplier to local groups and also not having to put official Russian servicemen on the ground. There's another aspect at play here, which goes into the armed protest mentality. Prigozhin is one of Putin's associates. They first really publicly became affiliated back in the early 2000s. They might have known each other in the 90s, but that's always been debatable. But he is a outsider within the Kremlin circle, but someone who has been shown to have a very entrepreneurial spirit and a willingness to provide services for the Kremlin that the official state wants to distance itself from. So, for example, he headed up the Internet Research Agency, which we now know was one of the first iterations of troll farming, which helped to influence the U.S. election. That's what got him on the FBI's radar. By giving Prigozhin Wagner as a tool to advance the state agenda, Putin was also able to further play the security services and the military against one another. 
Putin's entire system is patronal politics, where he pits different factions against one another and different factions within organizations against one another. Now, normally that works because it keeps them fighting for his approval, and he serves as the aloof supreme arbiter who finally steps in and makes decisions. But the war has put a lot of pressure on that relationship. And what we saw break out with this armed protest was Putin making an arbitration ruling and Prigozhin not liking the outcome, because essentially what Putin had said was that Wagner needed to be incorporated under the Ministry of Defense. And that meant that Prigozhin was not only going to significantly lose his power, but it was going to open him up to avenues for his enemies within the MOD to attack him. Thanks, Jeff, for giving us a little bit of a background on the Wagner Group, but more importantly, the internal dynamics between the Wagner Group's leader, Prigozhin, and the government. Aram, I'd like to turn to you and talk about how we've seen the rhetoric out of Prigozhin changing and also gaining a lot of ground in the past couple of months, with most importantly in May, we saw a video go viral in which Prigozhin calls out top Kremlin officials, including the Russian Minister of Defense and the commander of the Russian forces in Ukraine, while standing over the bodies of dead Wagner fighters in Bakhmut by saying that Russia was not providing enough ammunition and support for the casualties that the Wagner Group was taking on in an alarming amount of numbers. So were the signs there and were they ignored? Was the Kremlin seen as too strong or Wagner not seen as brazen enough to accomplish something like that? Walk me through the thinking here. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it was it, it, it wasn't quite inevitable that this would happen, but it wasn't shocking to me and I think to a lot of other people who follow the conflict closely to see Wagner taking or upping the ante with their frustrations and with voicing their frustrations to the Russian state, even to the extent of an armed insurrection, as we saw. The lack of ammunition, the lack of supplies getting to Wagner, I think, stems from a couple of key roots. There's primarily the Russians are not doing very good logistically for their own military. Their own military is having trouble getting ammunition and fuel and supplies and things like that. So when you filter that down to a non-military affiliated militia, which does have the backing of the state but is not the military itself, you're going to see why there might be some issues in those supplies getting trickled down all the way. Militaries the world over really don't like militias. They don't like armed groups other than themselves and other militaries for a lot of factors, but namely because they've worked their, their butts off to get where they are in the military over many years. They've been promoted and whatever. And to see that power kind of usurped by Putin's friend and his friend's men is frustrating to a lot of military career men. And so the idea that they would maybe, maybe not necessarily withhold supplies, but would be less driven to supply Wagner forces doesn't surprise me. And when you look at the number of casualties Wagner was taking around Bakhmut, it also doesn't surprise me that that blew up into a confrontation because they were taking way more than most militaries would be able to withstand. And that's kind of the design of Wagner is that they can use mercenaries and convicts and things like that who don't necessarily have as much political capital and social capital in Russia as, say, an 18-year-old blonde-haired, blue-eyed conscript from Moscow or St. Petersburg, right? These these Wagner guys, they're a little older typically, and they're not your typical conscripts or or contract soldiers. So if I could pull a little bit on that thread that you said, Aram, about how anyone who's been studying Russia for a long time, as you both have, would have seen something like this coming. Back to you, Jeff. You 
phrased this as an armed insurrection. And when it started over the weekend with Prigozhin calling on Wagner to rush on Moscow, capturing a Russian city and getting within, according to Prigozhin, about 120 miles from Moscow and then pulling back. The announcement of Prigozhin to march on Moscow came after he phrased that the Russian military had fired on Wagner fighters and killed about 20 of them. The other side of this is that U.S. intelligence reportedly knew that Wagner forces were building up on the Ukrainian border for some time. Do you think that this proposed incident that Prigozhin said to happen of the Russian military firing on Wagner fighters was kind of the spark to this whole armed insurrection? Or was this building up for a long time? And that was just even if that happened or if it didn't happen, something that just kind of like lit the spark. It was clear that there was a great deal of tension that was building for a while. Remember, there were other incidents prior to this, including taking a brigade commander hostage for several hours and making him film what was essentially a confession video that he was withholding supplies from Wagner. There's other incidents that have been reported on Telegram, which are not verifiable. But if you study the Russian military, sound very plausible. Wagner brutalizing uh, quartermasters for not providing supplies. Friendly fire incidents, Wagner troops being used essentially as rear echelon security forces to prevent military units from retreating. So the degree to which it escalated so quickly was unexpected, but this is pretty typical for Russian politics since the 1990s. You have long periods of stability where all of the tension is kept just out of sight under the surface and you can only get indications of it. And then gradually things begin to break through into the open, like with taking the brigade commander hostage. And then suddenly it changes dramatically. U.S. intelligence probably picked up on this growing tension as to the actual attack on the Wagner camp and whether or not that was intentional. It's impossible to say if it was staged, if it was something that actually happened. And it's entirely plausible that it's both of those things. I think Occam's razor says the most likely scenario is it was a friendly fire incident. And that's what finally caused Prigozhin to blow his stack. Because the reporting we've had from Medusa and the Moscow Times, which still have sources in the Kremlin and within Russian society, indicate that Prigozhin made the decision to seize Rostov fairly quickly. It's worth noting that throughout the entirety of this, though, they were fairly restrained. They didn't engage directly with security forces in most cases, despite the 13 pilots who were killed when they shot down aircraft. They didn't harm any servicemen at the military headquarters they seized in Rostov, and there was no effort to engage directly with security forces. Interestingly, though, most of the official state security sources just kind of stood to one side and let Wagner go past until they began to fortify that river. But then there were serious doubts whether or not the troops manning the Oka River line were actually going to be willing to fire on Wagner troops or whether or not they were just going to roll over. Yeah, and I think what was interesting to me was seeing as this Wagner convoy advanced toward Moscow and as there were more and more reports of security forces standing aside, it seemed like the only forces I really saw in Moscow on any of the live streams I was watching that were making any actions toward defending the city were the municipal government dump trucks, convoys of dozens of them moving around the city, dumping dirt on the freeways, bulldozers digging up freeways, things like that, which speaks more to a, a panic at some levels than I think we really saw in the Russian media. I don't think the upper echelons were panicking, but I think that some levels of leadership within the Moscow government were absolutely terrified of Wagner. 
Well, I do think there certainly was panic at all levels because this was so unprecedented and so unexpected. And Prigozhin is, like I said, he he previously was a gangster who has a reputation for brutality. So there's indication that there was indeed quite a bit of panic. But you make an excellent point. And this is something that was very similar to what we saw in the 1991 coup d'etat. I'm going to reference Brian Taylor's research here. He calls it Tbilisi syndrome, essentially during the breakup of the Soviet Union. The Soviet military was used for crowd control, a mission they had never been trained for, and they handled it with all the subtlety of trying to smash a fly with a sledgehammer. Civilians always got hurt, and then the military was scapegoated. And as a result, in the 91 coup, there was a very careful set of actions taken by commanders on the ground to follow orders, but only to follow them very precisely. My favorite example is Pavel Grachev who was commanding the ground forces in Moscow during the 91 coup, was ordered to surround the Russian White House where Boris Yeltsin, the opposition leader, was making his stand. Grachev surrounded the building with tanks as ordered, but he kept the cannons pointing away from the building, which caused some people in the media to speculate he was defending the building. He never said definitively. But regardless of what his intentions were, after Yeltsin won the day, Grachev got to become defense minister. So it's kind of that managed fence sitting to play both sides against the middle. And one other point I wanted to raise, I'm sure you're aware, but you brought up how the composition of Wagner was, you're absolutely right, they draw from convicts and from ethnic publics, but also my research indicates a good number of them are also contract soldiers who are deeply disgusted with the ineffectiveness and corruption within the Russian military. And from the Russian military's perspective, The fact that they've left the military and joined Wagner and see it as a superior organization makes them traitors in the military's eyes, which just only adds to the layers of tension between the two organizations. After the whole world was watching all of this come undone over the weekend, we saw about 24 hours after this all began, a deal was suddenly struck between Putin and Prigozhin with the Belarusian government serving as a mediator in which Prigozhin told all of the Wagner troops to go back to Ukraine, that Prigozhin was going to go live out in Belarus, that the Wagner troops who partook wouldn't be charged and those who didn't could join the Ministry of Defense accordingly. What conclusions can we draw from the deal and how fast it happened? And also about the future of Wagner and its leadership under that of Prigozhin and Also, I'm curious, as you mentioned, Jeff, how Wagner has in its components contract soldiers who are not too pleased with the corruption and some of the logistics of the Russian military. How much power that Prigozhin has to kind of mandate these forces stop fighting and to control the inner workings of Wagner? Okay, so what we see from the deal is that Prigozhin at some point realized he had gone too far too fast. He might have gone all the way to Moscow, and there were avenues for him to depose Putin, but most of them probably led to him being deposed himself in a counter coup. So he quickly began scrambling for whatever deal he could make, and actually he made a fairly good deal. It's worth noting that Wagner and other private military organizations are officially illegal under Russian law under Article 359. However, this law has not been enforced because of the service they provide to the Wagner state. But why would they leave the law on the books? Well, it's in case Wagner ever got out of control, the prosecutor general could open criminal cases and bring charges immediately. 
I think this is what Prigozhin feared was going to happen. And one of the reasons why he launched his mutiny was he feared that somehow he, criminal charges would be brought against him if he lost control of Wagner. So he made a deal that essentially allows him to exit into honorable exile. His control over Wagner is, I don't want to say absolute because it's an incredibly murky organization, but you have to think of it not as like a Western entity or an actual place that honors contracts and has legal arbitration when there are disputes. It's essentially a large organized crime organization. It's run as such. So the men further down the ranks probably are aware they got screwed. We saw from Putin's speech today, they have two options. They can go to Belarus with their ex-boss, or they can stay and join the military. There's not a third option. And in fact, when they said that signing new contracts with the Ministry of Defense was optional, it was pretty clear that they were going to be voluntold to do it because volunteerism, you know, the tradition goes back to the Soviet Union. You're essentially you're told to volunteer and you better bloody well do it. So Wagner's got an international footprint. I think a good model to look at with how things are going to unfold from here is actually what has happened to other Russian companies after the state has stepped in and reined them in. You know, you could even argue that there's the UCOS case is a good example. Its director was first put in prison, but then later allowed to go into political exile. He lives here in London. And the company's assets were divided up among Kremlin loyalists. It's likely that the lucrative arms of Wagner that are in sub-Saharan Africa will be broken up and put within different management companies or different managers now, no longer acting as a single entity, but rather a diffusion of PMCs answering to different people who obviously are at somewhere within the Kremlin circles. There's precedent for this. There's half a dozen other PMCs that are active. Wagner's just the most well-known and prominent because of its role as shock troops. And Prigozhin's going to slink off into Belarus, probably, and stay there and keep his head down for a while, hoping the winds of political change will shift again and he will be welcomed back to Putin's court, you know, unless the Ministry of Defense or Putin himself takes revenge first. I personally think he crossed Putin personally, and Putin's never going to forgive him for that. And there will be probably people who are trying to bump him off as a way to elevate their own stature with Putin. We've seen this before. The uh, Nemintsov murder arguably was a very misguided effort to gain Putin's favor. Yes. And then Wagner within Russia, it's pretty clear, will be broken up and absorbed into the Ministry of Defense or perhaps other PMCs or militias. There are some rumors circulating on Twitter that Wagner's assets in Syria is already being seized by the Ministry of Defense. Likely, this is a form of revenge. But yeah, the Wagner group was always a fiction. It was meant to serve a purpose. It got too big for its britches and the attack dog that Putin put in charge of it turned around and bit him. So now he's redistributing it. But this does have the effect of a long-term destabilization on the regime because the pressure on the regime is going to stay there. And now Putin's infallibility is clearly been called into question for probably the first time in a long time. It's worth noting, too, that, uh, Aram, maybe you can speak more to this because there's a lot of contradictory claims I've seen, and you probably have a much better idea of where the Kadyrov militia were. But from my observation, based on following media reports, the Kadyrov militia was one of the only units to actually move proactively to attack Wagner and were on the outskirts of Rostov-on-Don when the deal was actually announced. And the fact that the regime has to rely on another, what is essentially private militia, 
even though it's officially Chechen state forces, they are they're functioning a private militia of Ramazan Kadyrov for its security indicates just how weak the regime is internally. And it doesn't bode well for when Putin finally exits the stage. Yeah, I'm outskirts of Rostov on Don was basically the last place that I had seen reports of the Kadyrovites. They were doing their typical photo shoots with the public as they got closer and closer. So they're pretty easy to track as opposed to most Russian military units. What was interesting to me was as Wagner units did move through these checkpoints, I think there was some degree of Russian military personnel standing aside because they might have agreed with what Wagner was doing. But I think that there might have been orders from on high to not directly engage with them outright, because if they did, then it would be a conflict between the two sides, between the Russian Ministry of Defense and Wagner. That makes it so there's no more negotiating to be done or there is negotiating that can be done, but it's harder to negotiate once the gunfire begins. And I think that might be partially why we didn't see an engagement, because I find it very hard to believe that they could have driven that close to Moscow without anybody firing at them. Not that I think that it would have been a difficult push for them, but I think it's there was more at play there than what meets the eye. Well, there are a lot of rumors circulating that various mid-level commanders, especially police generals, told their men to avoid direct confrontation. But we do have to reiterate that there was violence involved in this. They did shoot down a number of aircraft. I'm not sure the precise number, but as Putin has said that at least 12 pilots died, called them heroes today in his speech to the armed forces in the Kremlin Square, which is a very interesting piece of performative politics. I mean, you might well be right. And this points to internal division within the various three bodies and also the inability of the various ministry bodies to coordinate among themselves. Their inter-service rivalry is legendary and has continued through the war. Rather than serving as a unifying incentive, the ministries have continued to fight each other for resources. We saw today the Rosgardia announced that they were going to be getting all of Wagner's heavy equipment, which they previously didn't have. They're essentially glorified riot troops but no one confirmed that. This came from the Rosgardia, so there might be an effort to try to influence the decision on the redistribution of Wagner assets. Yeah, and one thing I'd like to point out was that among the losses of those aircraft, I think it was at least five helicopters that I can confirm were shot down. But in addition to that, there was an IL-20M, which is like a four-engine turboprop aircraft, but it's a rare aircraft. It's an electronic warfare communications intelligence aircraft, and the Russians don't have many of them. And so The people who were killed on that aircraft were very highly trained technicians, and I think that their losses, more than your average combat helicopter pilot, are going to weigh heavily on the Russian military's level of frustration with what happened. For our final question, I want to briefly go back to a point that I think it was Iran that made about how the Wagner Group was so helpful in a place like Bakhmut because they were able to take on mass casualties and be helpful in this regard. And now that kind of things are changing, is this going to be like a fundamental role that is not going to be fulfilled by a group like Wagner in this capacity? Is that calculus that the Russian military is going to have to rethink in this regard? I think the Russian military is having to recalculate how they approach this war in general. And I think that partially that's due to their tactics not working and they can see their tactics not working on the battlefield. But it's also partially because Like we've discussed, Wagner's taken so many casualties and doesn't seem to be willing to continue to take those casualties for things like Bakhmut, which for all the symbolism that's been thrown up behind it, 
was a relatively insignificant city that only gained in significance because it was a big culminating point and a big battleground, but it wasn't strategically significant. And they lost a lot of men over a strategically rather insignificant city. So also to answer your question, Carolyn, the short answer is no. This The Russian military will not stop using shock units like this. Like I said, Wagner has no real significance. It is a label that they slapped on something they had created to serve a purpose. There's a term, and I'm sorry if I mispronounce it for our Russian speakers, strafbat, which is the Soviet word for for penal soldier or convict soldier. The Russian state can always formally create penal battalions. Again, there's precedent. They can create new PMC organizations. And essentially, they have a actually surprisingly limited supply of fit, able men. But they do have a large prison population they can draw on to just feed into that meat grinder. I want to thank you both so much for coming on here to discuss this incredibly relevant and time-sensitive topic. I think I can speak for most people that are following us right now that it's a very constantly changing, constantly moving, dynamic situation. And I really appreciate you both taking the time to come on here and break it down for us and let us know how we should look at this as a big picture situation and also analyze the details to figure out what's next for the Wagner Group and Russia. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Contours. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on major streaming platforms, including iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify, so you don't miss any of our new podcasts. You can check out further analysis into geopolitics and U.S. foreign policy at www.newlinesinstitute.org. All the best.